Hi, everyone. I'm Charlie Boyd, and welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted just to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. The amazing revelation of Scripture is that the God of the universe wants to live with us in an up-close personal relationship. But that doesn't mean that we can treat him any way we want. God is holy, and that means we must never treat him with anything less than the respect he rightly deserves. We have to relate to him as he instructs us in his word. And to not relate to him as his word instructs, and even to be ignorant of what his word instructs, which is exactly what's going on in this story, that's to treat him as unholy. Now, a lot of people today will say things like, well, I just believe that if you're sincere about what you believe, God will accept that. Uh, Is that true? No, many, many people who love God say things like, well, you know, things just weren't working out for me in my marriage, and I wonder what the Bible says about marriage and divorce and all that, but I just believe God wants me happy, and I'm not happy, so my, I think, you know, basically, God wants me happy, so I'm, I'm just going to leave. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about, um, there, are, there are biblical grounds for divorce, that kind of, I'm not talking about staying in an abusive situation. I'm talking about people who just, oh, we're not compatible, I just want to be happy. To ignore what God says just to pursue personal happiness, that is to treat God as unholy. Many sincere Christians today being influenced by sincere leaders in the church who say that you can choose whatever identity you want based on your sexual attraction. But God says in his word that he is the one who chooses and determines our identity. We don't choose our identity. God gives us an identity. And not to accept that is to treat God as unholy. Now, I hear you. You're you're saying, well, what does holy even mean? I'm not sure I even understand. It's like a big church word, but I'm not sure. That's a great question. When we talk about the holiness of God or we say that God is holy, we mean there is no one or no thing in all of heaven and earth that is like him. He is like no other He is in all, above all, and over all. It means that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and thoughts higher than ours. And that means that he and he alone has the right to define good and evil and right and wrong. Holy means, as Almighty God, as our Creator and Redeemer, He and He alone has the right to define and determine how life is to be lived in relationship with Him. You see in this, 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 the point is that our holy God wants to live among us. He wants to live up close and personal with us, but that doesn't mean you can just treat Him however you want. You gotta come to Him and relate to Him according to his word. 
Now, let's push rewind. Let's go back to the story. I'm about to say something that might shock you, but this is so important. This moment of tragedy is also an awesome moment of grace. You see, God knew what was going on in Israel. The nation had drifted away from the true worship of God. They had become deeply enculturated by the surrounding nations to the extent that they were giving their heart to the worship of their idols. And you you might remember that the previous king, King Saul, was consulting a witch to try to determine what he was supposed to do as king. God knew something about Israel, but he knew something about David as well. Even David's heart had drifted. David was chosen to be chosen by God to be king over God's people Israel, but as king, he had become quite comfortable with polyamory, with being a polygamist, which was in direct disobedience to God's command. So as crazy as this may sound, what we're reading here about the holiness of God is how a, a loving holy God was calling his people back to himself in order to have fellowship with them, that up-close personal relationship, and to bring his people back to real, consist, uh, consistent, scripture-based, heartfelt worship. Now, you see, every one of us in this room, we all have a problem, and it's the same problem. And it's not unlike David's problem, and that is your heart and my heart are prone to wander. You remember the old hymn, Ode to Grace, How Great a Debtor, Daily I'm Constrained to Be? Let that grace now, like a fetter, chain my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Because we have wandering hearts, because we're all, off, um, all, all of us are often more attractive to our way of doing things than God's way, because we are tempted to tend to bend the rules or bend the truth, because we sometimes step outside of God's loving boundaries, because we even do God things, our way, the holiness of God is our hope. God's holiness is our hope. Our hope, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, God in his holiness is serious about your sin. In holiness, God is absolutely driven to rescue you and me from you and me. Paul Tripp puts it this way, your greatest problem in all of life exists inside of you, not outside of you. Deep inside, as I said, we're all prone to wonder. I, I want to write my own story. I want to adjust the plot lines of my life how I see fit. I want to make up my own rules. I want to serve my own kingdom. I want things to go my way. And your heavenly Father, your loving, holy heavenly Father, wants to save you and save me from all of that. Think about it, if you're a father or a mother, you know how this works. A wise parent gives their child instruction. And when they give a child a do this, don't do that uh, command, it's for their own good. And if that parent actually loves their child, they will not compromise that command. They will not be worn down. They will not just give up and say, okay, just do whatever you want. If I mean, if a parent 
ultimately knows what's best for their children, but lets them do whatever they want, that means that parent doesn't really love the child. Hebrews 12 uh, says that God is our holy father and he disciplines us to produce in us a, a harvest of righteousness and peace. His discipline, his correction, listen, his saying, no, I'm telling you, you won't find the life Jesus died to give you by living in the sin he died to save you from. That's for our good. You don't want to serve a God who will let you do anything you want. You want to serve an uncompromisingly holy God who will draw you back to himself again and again and again. You don't want a God who will let you do whatever you want. You want a heavenly father who will say, no, I, I love you too much to let you go down that road. God's refusal to compromise his own instructions are in itself an act of grace because there's nothing I need more than to be saved from my own prone to wandering heart. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I, I know this is probably hard for you to believe, but I can be selfish. I can be so impatient. I can be so unkind. I can be so proud. I can be such a demanding self-sovereign and I need a holy God that says, no, that's not where you're gonna find life. So this story is not a moment of divine failure. It's a moment of God's persevering grace, not allowing people to violate his holiness because it's not for their good, ultimate good to do that. He is shocking his people with the needed realization of the depth of their disloyalty, the depth of their rebellion, the depth of their ignorance, and he's calling them back into a relationship with himself that's up close and personal, but they have to come to him his way. And David comes to understand this. David comes to understand. He's angry now with God. He's afraid of God. He didn't want to take the risk of bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem, so he sends it to the home of a man named Obed-Edom who lived in Gath. Who else was from Gath? Who did David defeat? Goliath was from Gath. David sends the ark back to the Philistines. Now, unless you think this is a gracious gesture on his part, this would be like dumping toxic waste in somebody's backyard, <laughs> as far as the Philistines are concerned. But the, the amazing good news is that God blesses the household of Obed-Edom, probably meaning that he harvested more grain. His daughters and his daughters-in-law were more fertile. His business opportunities skyrocketed, things like that that were abundantly observable to people. And David hears about it. And so after three months, David wants to give it another time. try. This time, though, he does his due diligence. He prepares a place for the ark and pitched a tent for it. He said that no one except the Levites could carry the ark. And when he appointed Levites to carry the ark, this is what he told them. Now, this comes from the parallel account of this story in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 15, David says to these Levites, you are the leader of, leaders of the Levite families. You must purify yourself and all your fellow Levites so you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I've prepared for it. Now, look at this. 
because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us, not simply Uzzah, but us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. So the priests and the Levites purified themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to Jerusalem. Then the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with its carrying pole, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. So you see, David sees how he got it wrong. The first time, there's no mention that he consulted the Lord about any of this. Obviously, this time he does. And he realizes that by not following God's instructions about how to treat and transport the ark, he had brought disaster on himself, the people, and poor Uzzah. You say, well, this, I mean, to teach everybody a lesson, this isn't fair to Uzzah. I get that. But here's the deal. Sometimes the failures of a leader have hurtful consequences to an innocent follower. When our leaders send people in battle, people die. David's carelessness as a leader cost people their lives. And this is the second time that he's done this. Back to 2 Samuel 6, 12. So David went and brought the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. And after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing ram's horn. So you see what's happening here. The story seems to end on a high note. Everything is now in line with God's word. The priests are carrying the ark on poles on their shoulders. No cart this time. It is a great celebration. The, the amazing revelation of Scripture is that the holy God of the universe wants to live up close and personal with us, but that doesn't mean that we can just treat him any way that we want. He's holy. That means we have to treat him with the respect that he rightfully Deserves, and we got to relate to him as he instructs us in his word. To respect God's holiness, to treat him as holy, we have to come to him as his word instructs. We have to relate to him as his word instructs us to relate. To think that we can come any way we want, to think that we can relate to him any way we want, thinking that all that matters is that we're sincere That's to treat him unholy. So let me ask you one more time. What kind of God do you really want? Be honest. Do you you want a God that just endorses your plan for your life, even if he knows it's not the best plan? Do you want a God who just lets you make up your own rules, a God who willingly compromises what he knows is best in order for you uh, to pursue, to let you pursue what you think will bring you your own happiness? Do you want a God who will let you wander into messes of your own making? Or do you want a God who in gracious holiness says, no, that's not, that's not what I want for you. Now, I'm gonna end, I'm gonna end, let me end on some really good news. We're gonna fast forward now 400 years, and Yahweh is talking 
uh, speaking with Jeremiah, the prophet. And he is talking about how, and Jeremiah is writing, he's addressing uh, God's backslidden, enslaved people, and he's painting a picture of a time in the future where the manifest presence of the Lord no longer resides in the ark. Listen, Yahweh says, and when your land is once more filled with people, says the Lord, you will no longer wish for the good old days when you possess the ark of the Lord's covenant. You will not miss those days or even remember them, and there will be no need to rebuild the ark. In that day, Jerusalem will be known as the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will come there to honor the Lord, and they will no longer stubbornly follow their own evil desires. In those days, the people of Judah and Israel will return together from exile in the north, and they will return to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance forever. A time when the ark is no more, a time when a holy God is up close and personal with his people without the ark, what changes all of that? I mean, how is it possible that the times of rules and rituals and relics are no longer needed to sustain a relationship with God? Well, everything changes because on the cross, the holiness of God and the grace of God meet and kiss in Jesus. In the Old Testament, God's uncompromising holiness demands that sin must be punished. But also in the Old Testament, God's holy love and grace provided an acceptable sacrifice for sin, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, ensuring God's continued presence among his people. But all that changed when Jesus came. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and in him, the manifest presence of God walked among us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 14 talks about that. And then on the cross, Jesus became the mercy seat for us. On the cross, God's holiness and grace meet to offer us forgiveness and life and to make it, listen, and to make it possible for the manifest presence of God to live inside us. And that is your hope when you put your faith and trust in Christ. Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church community, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org. Follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week, and we'll see you next time.